Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hi, everybody. Today we are jumping into King Benjamin's speech. Remember that we are going into this with the foreknowledge of some of the things that Benjamin intends to accomplish. We know that he wants to coronate his son, Mosiah. We also know that he wants to give his people a new name, the name of Christ. He says that this is so that they could, quote, be distinguished above all the people which the Lord hath brought out of the land of Jerusalem. And this I do, he says, because they have been a diligent people in keeping the commandments of the Lord. And I give unto them a name that never shall be blotted out, except it be through transgression. We should also remember that Benjamin is passing on a relatively new nation to his son. It was established by his father, Mosiah, and the people were made up of at least a minority of Nephites and a majority of Mulekites. We know that there was at least one other group of Nephites out there, and there could be others. We also know that there were Nephites and or Mulekites who were dissenters during Benjamin's reign. And we learn in the words of Mormon that these dissenters were either imprisoned by Benjamin or they fled to the Lamanites. There could also be other groups who were in the promised land already that have intermingled and begun to identify themselves as Nephites or Lamanites or Mulekites. Basically, this isn't all as simple as one group of Nephites and one group of Lamanites. Both Benjamin and his father before him have had to actively work to create a national identity out of a confederacy of people. And it seems after defeating and dispelling the Lamanites and imprisoning the dissenters or letting those dissenters flee to the Lamanites, there has been some success. So it makes sense that Benjamin sees a need to help create that new group identity by giving them a new name. In his words, to be, quote, distinguished above all other people which the Lord God hath brought out of the land of Jerusalem. One final thing to note before we begin walking through this chapter. Benjamin is king. He's called the people together to coronate his son, Mosiah, as king. And this all probably takes place during a religious festival. Religion and politics are not separate for Benjamin. Our idea of drawing a line between the secular and religious would have made no sense for him. And so we'll see him weaving the two together in his speech. The Church of Christ hasn't arrived in Zarahemla yet. So the religion is a national affair, a state affair, and whatever is political is also religious. With that, let's begin with verses 1 through 8. These verses really set the scene for Benjamin's speech. Mosiah does as his father has commanded him and gathers the people. And we get a lot of indication in these verses that they have chosen a religious festival as the time to gather, where the people in and around Zarahemla would have already been coming to the temple with their families to offer sacrifice. Scholars disagree as to which festival this is. It could be the Day of Atonement or the Feast of Tabernacles or some other festival, but it's pretty clear something is going on. Verses 3 and 4 point out that the people offered sacrifice and gratitude. Remember, they are still living under the law of Moses. 
for the Lord leading them out of Jerusalem, the Lehite and Mulekite exoduses, delivering them from the hands of their enemies, perhaps a reference to the exodus led by Mosiah and the resulting wars, and just men who were appointed by God to establish peace, to teach them the commandments, and to cultivate a love of God and of all men. So far, so good. We're told that the people all gathered in multi-generational family groups and tents with their doors facing the temple. We can imagine what it might have been like to be there. Too many people to count. Kids who are too young to pay attention running around. And even with Benjamin's tower, it's difficult or impossible to hear everything being said. After some failed attempts to speak loud enough, you hear that Benjamin will send out his words in writing perhaps to be read in smaller groups so that everyone can know what is said. No doubt one of these surviving copies is Mormon's source text. We can smell the smoke in the air from cooking fires and the sacrifices in the temple. There's livestock mingled in with the people. There are probably people singing psalms appropriate for the festival, maybe speaking in different languages. We could go on and on, but you get the idea. This is an active scene. Continuing into the next section with verses 9 through 14, Benjamin tells the people that this isn't just any kingly address. He's not trifling with words. He's got a purpose and wants the people to open their ears that they may hear, their hearts that they may understand, and their minds that the mysteries of God may be unfolded to their view. These are words spoken from a tower built within the temple complex. Almost as if, even though there isn't enough room for everyone to enter the temple, the temple is being extended to them. Almost like when a temple dedication is broadcast and the sacred space of the temple is extended to remote locations and chapels. When we are taught in the temple, it isn't enough for the doors of the building to open to us. We need to open our ears and hear, our hearts and understand, and our minds so that we can see God's mysteries. Otherwise, we may just think that we're experiencing trifling rituals and words. Benjamin says that he doesn't want them to think that he's anything more than just a mortal man. He's not a god king like some claim to be. He's subject to all manner of infirmities of body and mind. I can't help but think of Jesus here, who is a god king, but chose to become subject to all manner of infirmities of body and mind. Apparently, Benjamin, like his father, was chosen by the voice of the people to be king. Historian Patrick Mason, who was my advisor in grad school, made the point that Benjamin says that he was commanded to choose his son Mosiah as king. And maybe there's a difference there between the voice of the people choosing the king and God commanding. Maybe not. Benjamin then recounts the type of king that he has been. He hasn't sought riches or thrown everyone in jail, or allowed people to mistreat each other. He is a teacher king and has worked together with the prophets to teach them the commandments of God. It's worth taking a minute here to think about what he's saying. He's saying that he hasn't been compromised or corrupted by the power that he has. Now, maybe the Nephite dissenters would disagree, but it seems like Benjamin's people trust him. Perhaps we feel like we live in a more complicated time today than they had, that there are more people and more voices and more division, but I'm not sure that it is more complicated. Benjamin wouldn't be making this point if people haven't always been at risk of being compromised by power. 
In fact, we're going to see that Benjamin's period of peace will unravel within a generation and that there will once again be divisions and war. It's worth looking at our day in light of Benjamin's speech. What kind of leaders do we choose? What kind of power do we favor? How do we treat each other? And most importantly, how do we treat those who are different or less powerful than we are? Moving on in the next section with verses 15 through 26, let's begin with a question. If there is one word that you would choose to describe whatever nation you belong to, what would it be? What about the church? If you're an American, you might have chosen freedom or liberty because that's what we say about ourselves. Those are values that we profess are central to what makes an American. What about the church? You might say true or restoration or something like that. Well, I think Benjamin's word would be service. That's what he wants their identity to be built on. I tell you these things, he says, that you may learn wisdom, that you may learn that when you're in the service of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of your God. One of my favorite philosophers is a man named Emmanuel Levinas, and he was in love with this quote from Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov. The quote goes like this, We are all responsible for everyone else, but I am more responsible than all the others. For Levinas, this quote expressed the infinite responsibility that we have for each other's well-being. For Benjamin to say that service to another is only service to God is to invoke the same type of infinite responsibility. To get the full weight of this idea, we need to look at some of the ways that Benjamin describes our relationship to God. He says, If ye should render all the thanks and praise which your whole soul has power to possess, and should serve God with all your whole soul, yet ye would be unprofitable servants. He also says, In the first place, He hath created you, and granted unto you your lives, for which ye are indebted to Him. And secondly, He doth require that ye should do as He commanded you, for which if ye do, he doth immediately bless you, and therefore hath paid you, and ye are still indebted to him, and are and will be forever and ever. Therefore of what have ye to boast? He continues, Can ye say aught of yourselves? I answer you, Nay. Ye cannot say that ye are even as much as the dust of the earth. Yet ye were created of the dust of the earth. But behold, it belongeth to him who created you. Do you see that infinite indebtedness that Benjamin wants his people to feel toward God? There's no sense of reciprocity here or equality. Even when we try and reciprocate through service, we can't because he immediately blesses us. Paul felt the same indebtedness, which caused him to refer to himself as a slave to Christ. So that's how we're supposed to treat each other, really? As, as if we're infinitely in debt towards each other? We might say, but, 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 and even now I find myself reaching for justifications to try and let me off the hook of this mandate of service that Benjamin is giving to us. But Benjamin is quick to respond. Ye cannot say that you're even as much as the dust of the earth. This is a disruptively radical idea. And of course, Jesus goes one step further teaching that how we treat the least of these 
whether in service or neglect, is how we treat him. Levinas says, for others, in spite of myself, from myself. Who are our others? Who are the least of these for us? On to the next section, verses 27 through 30. We're going to go through this section really, really quickly. Benjamin basically finishes his reign and pronounces that God has commanded him to declare Mosiah king and ruler over the people. Now in the final section, verses 31 through 41, Benjamin immediately follows his coronation of Mosiah with a clear charge to the people. Transitions of power are periods that are fraught with danger. What has taken generations to build up can be lost in a few short years if people aren't careful. So Benjamin's biggest warning to his people is to beware lest there shall arise contentions among you, and ye list to obey the evil spirit, which was spoken of by my father Mosiah. Now, unfortunately, we don't have any teachings from Mosiah the first, so we don't know what Benjamin is referring to here. But the point is crystal clear. It's difficult to become unified, but it's easy to become divided. He draws on familiar imagery here of our actions producing fruit. But this time he seems to have the metaphor of wine in mind. For behold, he says, There is a woe pronounced upon him who choose to obey that spirit. For if he listeth to obey him, the same drinketh damnation to his own soul. In other words, whatever fruit you produce, that's the wine that you drink. That phrase, drinking damnation, caught my attention as I was studying this chapter. I can only find it in two other places in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 11 and 3 Nephi 18. Both references, from Paul and Jesus respectively, are discussing the Lord's Supper or the sacrament. In that same teaching in 3 Nephi 18, Jesus commands the people to watch and pray always, lest ye be tempted by the devil, and ye be led away captive by him. And he tells his disciples that he's giving this teaching because of the disputations which have been had among you. And blessed are ye if ye have no disputations among you. I don't want to make more out of this connection than there is, but to me it seems that there are some similar settings and themes here. Benjamin's teaching at a temple during a ritual festival, a coronation even, warning his people of contention and the evil spirit by using this sacramental language. And Jesus, having been coronated king through his resurrection, is also teaching at a temple, warning his people of disputations and being tempted and led away captive by the devil. Perhaps the only thing we really need to say here is that it's clear in both cases that keeping the commandments produces the fruit of the covenant, unity, communion, atonement, the doctrine of Christ, everything that we've talked about, and listening to the evil spirit produces contention and disunity. Benjamin builds on these themes, this time making the comparison between the wisdom's path, now remember that he wanted his people to learn the wisdom of service to each other as service to God earlier in his speech, so, wisdom's path versus obeying the evil spirit and becoming an enemy of all righteousness. In verse 36, he says that wisdom's path produces blessedness, think happiness, prosperity, and preservation. Whereas if someone follows the evil spirit, they become an unholy temple. And moreover, he says in verse 41, I would desire that you should consider on the blessed and happy state of those who keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received in heaven. 
that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. On the other hand, Benjamin wants them to awaken to remembrance of the awful situation of those that have fallen into transgression. And he describes that awful situation as justice waking up their souls to a lively sense of their own guilt, filling their breasts with guilt and pain and anguish, which is like an unquenchable fire whose flames ascendeth up forever and ever. Okay, well, that may all sound very extreme and maybe even dogmatic, particularly to our modern ears. It's not very hip today to threaten people with unquenchable fire. But Benjamin's message is really quite simple and just about the truest truth there is. Grant me a little creative license to paraphrase this chapter. How you are with each other is how you'll be with God. Better yet, who you are with each other is who you'll be with God. If you ever want to be happy, especially in eternity, you'll need to learn to serve God. And if you want to learn to serve God, you need to serve each other. One day you'll stand before him, but right now he's put you in front of one another. The evil spirit will try and close your eyes to each other to put you to sleep, but you'll have to open your eyes eventually. And if you don't do it now, then justice will wake you up later. So wake up now. Open your ears so that you can hear each other, your hearts so that you can understand, your eyes and minds so that the mysteries of God may be unfolded to your view today. It's really not actually a mystery. It's just wisdom. If you want to be happy, wake up and serve each other. Learn to be happy with each other. If you want to be miserable, be selfish. Listen to the evil spirit. Go to sleep. And one day, you'll wake up all alone. I warned you that I was going to take some creative license there, but I don't think that I'm too far off the mark. Well, we've gone too long for today and skipped too much, but hopefully there was something in there of value to you. We'll be back next time with Mosiah 3 and continuing on with King Benjamin's speech. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.